Welcome to the SPE Podcast. I'm Jason Notoris. We have something new and exciting set up for this episode. As SPE ventures into new arenas of digital content, we have begun streaming live simulcasts on our social media platforms. That's on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. One recent broadcast brought together a collection of writers from SPE Magazine's JPT, that's the Journal of Petroleum Technology, and OGF, Oil and Gas Facilities. Before we hand it over to the editorial staff, wanted to quickly remind everyone that you can learn more about our magazines by visiting spe.org publications. From there, it's pretty easy to navigate to the digital content of your choice. Of course, you can also bookmark that site for quicker access for future visits. Okay, here you go. Recorded on Tuesday, 15 April, 2020, the next voice you'll hear is Trent Jacobs, moderating SPE's first live editorial roundtable. I hope everyone tuning in today is being safe and healthy. Uh, today we're trying something new. We're doing a live chat with editors from JPT and uh, the oil and gas facilities. We're going to be spending the next half hour or so with you highlighting some of the most recent reports that are in uh, OGF and JPT. And uh, we're going to give you also a preview of some of the things that we're working on in the, uh, the next couple of weeks. Um, we're going to touch on OPEC plus agreement, which is sort of the big topic of the day and its potential impacts. Brian Balboa, an editor with uh, Oil and Gas Facilities, is going to talk to us about what the industry has um, in terms of cut cost cutting, if there's any more room to go. Judy Federer is going to give us a high-level view of the offshore arena, um, and Stephen Rassenfoss is going to uh, end us with a spotlight on three new drilling innovations uh, that might help that segment of the market. So, so first, we're going to we're going to just dive into uh, the OPEC Plus agreement and uh, get some of those highlights out of the way. Uh, this agreement sort of became uh, formalized on Sunday. Uh, it's a historic deal. It's the largest agreement. Uh, it's the largest cuts that OPEC Plus has ever made. Um, and it ends a costly price war uh, that, as we know, began early March and uh, has resulted in uh, a lot of chaos in the uh, oil and gas industry. So the things to keep in mind with this uh, cut is that it's 9.7 million barrels a day. Uh, the cuts do not take place until May 1st. And uh, the baseline for the largest two members of OPEC Plus, Russia and Saudi Arabia, uh, they're going to start their cuts at 11 million barrels a day, uh, which is significant since uh, Saudi Arabia especially is already producing over 12 million. Uh, both will go down to 8.5 million a day. And uh, these, these cuts, though, this 9.7, this does not last for long. Uh, they're going to loosen up in June and shrink to 5.8 million barrels a day until December. Uh, and those will... Uh, those will translate into uh, uh, further cuts that go down to uh, 5.8 million in uh, in January the 20 to 21 to 22. Uh, Mexico uh, created a little bit of drama here, holding up the agreement. This was sort of what made uh, added a little bit of a of a twist to the the overall deal. Um, they were asked to make a cut of 400,000 barrels a day, um, but they only agreed to 100,000 barrel a day cut and uh, said that the U.S. was going to pick up the slack there on 250000 So uh, the mechanisms in place for the United States to join this are not clear yet, um, but, uh, but that's, that's what got the deal through in the end. Um, the, the big question, though, is will it make a difference? Uh, the EIA had a report out today stating that April's demand is now 29, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, 24 to 29 million barrels uh, a day off from year-over-year -year levels. So uh, it, it's only a dent. And uh, what we've seen is that uh, the crude markets, uh, WTI and Brent, have not responded too favorably 
But uh, what analysts think is that this will stem the, uh, the bleeding over, over the long term. So uh, obviously, the, these cuts are going to be a big story <clears throat> and something for us to keep an eye on. Uh, and we're going we're gonna to be covering that story a little bit more as it develops in JPT. Uh, but I want to throw it over to Brian now. Uh, he's been looking at uh, the cost cutting that the industry has been going through. Uh, this has been another huge story. Brian Balboa is the associate editor of uh, our online publication, Oil and Gas Facilities. Uh, Brian, you've been covering uh, projects and investments in the upstream world. Uh, what has stood out to you the most uh, during uh, this period? So, Trent, what really stands out right now is how little companies have to work with when it comes to reducing costs. Now, when you look at the last downturn that took place from 2014, 2016, companies were forced to reduce costs and streamline operations across the board. Now, since then, most of the industry has actually kept those cost cutting measures in place. So, you know, they're operating lean as it was coming into this pandemic, so to speak. That's made it even more difficult for companies to cut costs this time around. So I wrote a feature last week on OGF where energy research groups, uh, Wood McKenzie and Rystat Energy, actually outlined this very issue. Uh, looks like your, your mic is cut there, but uh, let me dive into that right there. So some areas, Trent, that Wood Mac and Rystat think that are most likely to be cut. Uh, you know, obviously no area is safe right now. In the case of Wood Mac, the areas that are the easiest to cut right now are going to be the short cycle investment or the lower 48 states. You can see the chart right there and pre-final investment decision projects. Now, uh, the easiest way to actually cut CapEx spending right now, according to Woodmac experts, is really not to spend and to defer. So Woodmac, they actually lowered their 2020 global CapEx estimate from under uh, just under 500 billion to under 400 billion. But again, you know, you have to note with the wide range of uncertainty right now, uh, risk is very much still to the downside. When you look at Rystad's analysis on global E&P, global exploration and production, they said operators will only be able to cut supply chain costs by up to 12% this year. So about 9% of those cuts relate to service prices and 3% to efficiency improvements. You can see the screen up here too. Um, they expect similar cuts within the shell industry at 16%, uh, similar cuts offshore at 12%, and other onshore at uh, 10%. Now, looking at that, I mean, they're still able to cut costs, but it's really not a lot compared to the previous downturn in 2015-2016 uh, when the industry saw a reduction of 37%, uh, as outlined there. The shell industry back then in particular was able to reduce costs by nearly half back then at 45%. So really not a lot of room to trim fat, as they say. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. thanks, Brian. Uh, still having, getting used to the uh, the mute button here, but but yeah, no, good point. I mean, I, I think what that says to me is uh, it, it shows that, that really the industry hadn't fully recovered uh, from the last downturn in, in 14 and 15. And, and so uh, uh, this is gonna come with a, an extra sting. What are, what are some of the other things that you're looking at right now uh, and have coming out in the uh, the near term? So uh, right now I'm actually looking at uh, storage space. There's really not a lot of storage space out there. I mean, you have a over abundance of supply, weak demand. We've seen how uh, oil prices have actually crashed at a record pace. I mean, you just talked about that with uh, the OPEC plus story, but kind of on a positive note though, 
One thing I'm working at right now that I'm looking at is a white paper that came out of the University of Houston. And uh, we've seen how hard this has hit the oil and gas industry in terms of job cuts, hiring freezes and work furloughs. But a recent study out of U of H and two energy associations found that a majority of workers in the energy sector actually approve of how their employers are handling the challenges brought on by COVID-19. I've had a look, uh, a chance to look at the survey. Um, I've had a look at it. It covers a lot of ground. And almost 90% of the employees uh, that were surveyed said their companies have responded to the pandemic effectively based on three issues. Number one being whether the company provided clear and honest information about the issue. Number two, whether they provided support to help workers juggle work responsibilities along with family responsibilities. And uh, number three, the extent to which the company has actually been prepared for the prospect of a global viral pandemic. I mean, uh, you know, most of the world is actually working from home. Uh, a lot of the world, actually. I mean, I'm juggling work responsibilities here, uh, not just family responsibilities as well. So it's it's something that, you know, I can definitely identify with. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people that are on this uh, webinar can identify with as well. So, I mean, looking at it, employees also indicated, though, in the survey that their companies must invest even more in employee health and well-being should this continue uh, to grow. And again, they feel that uh, companies should be growing projects uh, to support these local communities as well. So even though companies are having a tough go at it with budget cuts and job cuts, employees do feel that their companies are doing what they can. So that story will be out sometime this week on OGF. Okay, well, thank you, Brian, for that update. Uh, we're gonna move to uh, Judy Feder, who's the JPT Technology Editor. Uh, Judy, are you with us? Yes, hi, hi Trent. Uh, hey, Judy. First, first, apologies for scratchy voice and any coughing. I do not have coronavirus, but mm. my sweater in Houston brings with it allergies. So That's the new normal. Now we have to apologize for having allergies. Uh, yeah. but, uh, no, I'm with you there. So, so you've been looking at the offshore arena the last uh, few months. And, uh, and and what are some of the, uh, the the shifts in those scenarios that you've been that you've been looking at? Well, I started working uh, in late February on an article that will appear in the May uh, issue of JPT. And uh, when I started making notes, the offshore industry was doing everything right and really starting to look up. Um, to 2019 had been the third best year on record for, for the offshore. Um, it dominated the uh, highest volume of new discoveries since 2015. Free cash flow was approaching $90 billion and um, break evens for pre-FID deep water projects were averaging $50 a barrel. Um, there also at that time was anticipated $60 billion of greenfield uh, commitments with uh, break-evens of less than $40 a barrel. So everything was really looking good. Uh, then all of a sudden, in a period of a few days in March, the whole world changed and with it, the um, offshore picture. So now, uh, basically, you know, it's moved to survival mode. Um, uh, everything is down, obviously. Uh, expectations from analysts are that 
seismic market will decline about 60%. Uh, we'll probably end up with about 22 floating rigs and the eight majors that make up three quarters of deep water operations are cutting costs anywhere from 20 to 30%. Um, within that, uh, all, all regions will be hard hit, probably Africa the hardest uh, for a number of reasons, partially because their break-evens are $45 and often $60 a barrel. So is there, is there a bright spot in the, uh, the offshore arena right now? Yeah, um, actually there is. And, and in fact, um, some of the things that helped the offshore get into a good position for 2019 uh, will, are helping them now. Uh, the, a lot of the operators cut their costs as much as 50%. And so I think they're able to work much leaner. Um, this, uh, let's see, we're looking right here. Yeah, the other thing is cutoff points for um, cutoff points for for uh, production becoming unprofitable um, show, as you can see in this chart, that offshore is not in such bad bad shape. Uh, for Saudi Arabia, conventional oil, the cutoff point um, at which production becomes unprofitable is four dollars a barrel moves up to um, $9 for conventional onshore, $10 for shelf work, also $10 for Russia, uh, $12 a barrel for global tight oil, 13 for deep water and up to 28 for heavy oil. So not so bad. Um, so what it really shows is that, that OPEX is, is not the issue, it's the exploration costs that, that are gonna take the big hit here. Yeah, exactly. And that's what's being hit. That's uh, being hit the hardest. Exploration, drilling, seismic, etc. Um, but you're also seeing some silver linings, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, for example, uh, subsea tiebacks and phasing, um, which helped lower costs before, are going to help now. Um, Guyana, despite, you know, so many cutbacks, um, ExxonMobil, which is cutting, I think, 30 percent is not touching their Guyana operations. Um, and then in uh, uh, Norway, so Guyana is, is break even at $30. The Johan Sverdrup field in Norway is break even at less than $20. And one of the reasons for that is Equinor's adoption of digitalization, which brought them $400, $400 million of extra cash flow last year, and they're expecting more. This picture is showing, um, just came this morning, talking about Equinor's digital twin operations. And these are two guys that what you don't see is the screen. This is how they're, this is how they're uh, operating the Johannes Verdrup with, with a digital twin. So, so digitalization, I think is, is going to be a helper going forward and and part of a silver lining well thank you judy for the offshore perspective and uh, uh the last editor we're going to talk to uh this morning is uh steve rassenfoss our senior emerging technology editor steve how you doing i'm doing okay i'm doing okay at home um 
what I'm talking about this morning kind of goes back a ways, uh, back when uh, I used to shake hands with people, although I was worried about it at the time. And uh, when I got to go to uh, the drilling conference, it was one of the last SBE uh, shows that happened uh, before we all started working at home. And um, good good times, actually. Remembering so so you, you wrote about innovation. You went in there not looking at big market trends, but you went in there looking for in innovative ideas. What did you find? Well, what I found was three devices that uh, solved problems. Actually, some problems I actually I didn't quite know were important on drilling rigs. Um, one of the first ones was uh, one that is involved with, you know, you think of drillers and they, they obviously it's important they drill well, they manage the crew well, but it turns out coding is a thing as well. That every time they enter the a record of what they're doing in the daily drilling report, you got to take take that thing and that each of these items and match it up with one of more than like a hundred codes. These codes vary from company to company uh, or operator to operation. So it's it's a tough thing for uh, the uh, drillers to get this right. And actually, they do a pretty good job. But uh, when the the data people who are trying to take uh, these codes and use them to sort out what drillers really do and look for little slices of time to save, which, as was pointed out by um, by Brian earlier, is really getting to be critical, that you um, get into situations where you're wanting to make sure that they're all right. And so the University of Texas RAPID program, which is you know looking for new, new ways to push drilling automation, came up with an artificial intelligence way to sort through what they're doing and create a, an advisor for the, the coding. It's kind of like um, when you're uh, doing uh, a Google search. And so as it as you type words or as they type in the words of what they're doing, it quickly offers three suggested codes for it. And it turns out that when you know when they compare the accuracy of the what the machine offered drillers would have chosen that the machines was right more than 90% of the time. And drillers are like in the 80s, which considering there's all those codes, all those different codes, that's not bad, but the extra ac the accuracy should help the, you know, the people doing searches later. It doesn't involve a whole lot of work and it probably isn't some something that drillers are going to resist because while they really care a lot about the, making decisions when say doing directional drilling, if coding is easier, that's fine. So I think it's an idea that has some potential there. Yeah, and it and it, it marries up with other things that we've seen as as this uh, you know digital takeover happens. Uh, you know, all the all the sort of back end wonkiness uh, doesn't really translate translate well to the field. So you know, user interface, user experience, these things are paramount uh, when trying to uh, to get adoption out in the field. But what was your what was your second uh, uh, big you know innovation that you found, or or was it little? Well, we'll see. We'll see how it is. I mean, it it it, it is one. Of all of these things have probably impacts that ultimately are hard to judge because what you're trying to do is to turn what they do do what they do better in a way that you can get data that will maybe help you get a more realistic view of the world and. One way to do that is if you can look really well at the damage and measure really accurately the damage they have. It's found that's really interesting because more and more there's people with automated drilling programs that in theory are reducing damage, reducing 
uh, what happened you know, inefficient drilling, but you don't really know what that what the reality check for that is. What does the drill bit look like when they pull it up after it's gotten dulled in the ground or beat up, broken? And that's a, one, another one of those things, you, rituals on the rigs, most people never think about. This is done by the company representatives, and they call them company men, and commonly. And those, they're going to be asked whenever this thing is pulled, might be in the middle of the night, might be dark, might be, it's usually is a time when they're very busy and try to do a very detailed look at all the many teeth on this, look at breaks, degree of wear, and a lot of percentage questions. I mean, it's a really long question. It could take hours, and they don't have hours. And because there's, you know, those when you're switching out drill bits, a lot's going on in the rig that the company man wants to know about. And what these guys have come up with, it's called a bit box. And instead of having a human do this, the box covers this thing. There's multiple cameras. They shoot a lot of pictures, uh, creating what's going to be like a 3D image that can be graphically measured or digitally measured, sent off to the cloud. And that'll help them see what's going on. I mean, the competition now is shooting it with a, um, a program that uses a, a cell phone and, you know, or mobile, you know, as, as anybody who takes their, you know, does pictures of their phone, quality can matter, you know, quality lighting angles, they're all very inconsistent. So they're hoping they can create a device that's durable and about as cheap as a porta potty so that they think that people can afford them and put them on rigs in a regular way. And the, the ultimate value would be what can you find out about drilling uh, if you get this kind of data. Um, uh, we'll see how they and NOV do on this joint venture. Yeah, I, you know, I really like this innovation because it reminds me on the other side of, of how we've seen a lot of uh, uh, computer vision technology been brought in to uh, take pictures of uh, the drill cuttings on the shell shakers and decide sort of the stability of the uh, the borehole that way. And, and this is sort of taking that idea back to the drill bit, which is really interesting. And, and yeah, you know, you can imagine this is like a highly subjective human practice of trying to uh, assess the wear and tear on a PDC bit. Um, yeah, you know, like- and customers are already interested in looking at what else can they stick inside uh, to find out if it's going to work or not. Okay, well, and, and you also look at flow meters, is that right? Yeah, now here's a problem that is pretty widely recognized. I mean, what the flow in and out of wells is really important to make sure, you know, to control for one, th for one thing, for well control, because if there's an influx of gas, that's going to change, and early warnings and accurate warnings are really important. Nowadays, you know, there, there's a lot of fairly inexact uh, devices being used. Uh, the most popular being um, these paddle meter, paddle not immediately meters, but flow flow uh, indicators. And a paddle just basically moves up and down based on how much uh, fluids flowing through it. There's pretty inact. You know, it's a fairly subjective measure. These things get stuck when the dirt get all that drilling mud gets into the the hinges. They're just, you know, they're, they're fairly notorious, but they, they're really hard to replace because this is a, you know, a place where you want something that's small and you want something that's durable. And uh, the, the best, most accurate substitute has been the Coriolis meter. It's a, it's a good, you know, scientifically sound concept, but these things, when you, you're running a lot of fluid with mud and cuttings in them, tend to get, have buildups on their walls. You start getting inaccurate results they're pretty large and they're hard to get 
fit on there and uh, drill crews oftentimes just don't like the fact that these things are kind of finicky. And so they've just never caught on as a regular thing. So an innovator at Norris, which is a Norwegian research center, is trying to create a device which is built on the same, you know, scientific concept, but it's something that was tough and it was used in the uh, sand business. And here, instead of having, as you can see in this picture, you, which helps a lot, the stuff comes in, it flows in from the top and goes into that yellow thing, the gold colored thing in the middle, which is, if you looked at it, kind of like a water wheel. And as the um, fluid and it's spinning and that because it's spinning, uh, the, the fluid and the solids and all will, will, will be pu pushed out by centripetal force out to the walls of the device. While it's doing that, the force that they apply uh, increases the torque on this spinning wheel. And by measuring, precisely measuring that torque, they can figure out what the, you know, what kind of fluid flow they have coming out. When it hits the walls of that thing, uh, of the meter, they, the, the sound of that, they can tell kind of the mix. Are they getting more cuttings in? Is it getting heavier, you know, heavier, lighter? It's going to float on the side so it, it doesn't tend to get gunked up and then flow out. And there are some other meters they can in include that will give them further, you know, more detailed information. Uh, at this point, it looks like a promising idea. Some, some pretty heavy duty people from the industry were asking them afterwards at the show uh, it, what's going to happen. They're going to do a jo joint industry project and hope to uh, get it tested. Based on the conversation that started about it on LinkedIn, it sounds like there's a lot of interest, to, but like every other innovation, there's a lot of people who wonder, think there's things that are just, you know, it's too big, it's too complex, it's, they got a better idea. So we'll see what, we'll see what wins out over time. Yeah, well, in, anybody who's looked at uh, flow meter technology or that space for any, any given time knows that it's, it's really an interesting world with, with high hurdles. Uh, you're competing with technologies, like you said, they're either sort of notoriously inaccurate or cumbersome or delicate. Uh, and uh, and even if you come up with a, a, a better mouse trap, it's it's really hard to displace those uh, those legacy flow meters. But uh, but no, thanks. Good reporting, Steve. Thanks for bringing those ideas up to us. Uh, I wanted to thank you. I wanted to thank Judy and Brian as well. And uh, for everybody listening, we're going to uh, end our editors roundtable here. We hope that you got something out of today's discussion. Uh, all of the reports, uh, with the exception of some of the previews are available online on JPT and oil and gas facilities. And uh, if anybody tuned in late to this broadcast, we're going to be putting, uh, making this available on whatever uh, social media platform you're using right now to watch. And uh, SBE is going to keep bringing you live broadcast uh, with various hosts and panels and topics uh, in the coming weeks. So, so keep following us and, uh, and make sure that you don't miss any of this. So we, we hope that this is a valuable experience while everybody is doing their best working from home. Uh, so with that, stay safe, uh, stay healthy, and uh, thank you and goodbye. Special thanks to the editorial team for that discussion. If you want to watch the video, head over to one of SPE's social media channels. We'll include links in the description of this podcast, plus links to the articles that they mentioned. Keep the conversation going. You can always use the hashtag SPE podcast on social media, leave comments and talk to us about what topics you would like to hear from on future episodes. And we try to make it easy to find us. Just search SPE podcast on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. 
Please leave those reviews. We love the five stars and hearing your feedback. We're also online at spe.org slash podcast. Special thanks to this episode's guests, Trent, Brian, Judy, and Steve. I'm Jason Notoris, and thanks for listening. podcast is powered by the Society of Petroleum Engineers, whose vision is to advance the oil and gas community's ability to meet the world's energy demands in a safe, environmentally responsible and sustainable manner. Learn more at spe.org.